beginning in verse 27. It says, and they came again to Jerusalem. This is Jesus and his disciples. They came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is God's word, and thanks be to God. So, uh, authority. Uh, you probably don't get warm fuzzies when you hear that word. Uh, it's become, you know, a bit of a, maybe a word that leaves a bit of a bad taste in our mouths. Uh, you know, we cut people off, or we at least write people off in our minds with phrases like, you're not the boss of me, you know, or who are they to tell me how to do or what to do, this or that. Especially as Americans, but probably just as humans, we tend to have authority issues. I remember uh, trying to explain early on to my kids, my then two-year-old son, that bad news, you're not the boss. Mom and dad are the boss. To which he immediately replied, well then to whom do I get to be the boss of? Yeah. Uh, so the end of chapter 11 of Mark, and really almost all of chapter 12, could be titled, authority issues, as we see Jesus spar with the Jewish authorities of his day. And this question of like, what right does Jesus have to do and say all the things that he's been doing and saying, this has been bubbling up through the book of Mark, especially at the beginning, but now it comes to full boil, uh, especially last week with his overturning of the temple that we, that we looked at last week. And as we watch, you know, this power struggle unfold, we find that Jesus has something to say about his authority to all of us today. And that you could be uh, the most faithful, regularly attending church folk of all time, or someone who's 
has the least interest in anything to do with God. Because we all have to reckon with the authority claims of Jesus. We all struggle with them and we all wind up having to answer the same questions. Why should I submit myself to Jesus' authority? What makes his authority worth submitting to? Because we all have, you know, an ultimate authority at some level in our lives. So let's look at Jesus' authority as it's questioned, rejected, but then ultimately established. So Jesus', Jesus authority questioned, rejected, and established. So after Jesus returns to the temple in Jerusalem, there's this troop you know, of leaders, uh, chief priests, scribes, and elders that come to him and they try to trap him with a question. They say, you know, by what authority are you doing these things? In other words, who gave you the right to come in here and turn this whole place upside down? And here's the trap. If Jesus says, well, God sent me, I'm here on his authority, then they can directly charge him with either sedition against Rome, which they eventually will, uh, or blasphemy, which they will do that as well. But if he says, I'm here on my own authority, then he discredits himself in the eyes of the people as just a rogue rabbi, you know, not sent by God. But he turns the trap around and it totally backfires on them. He asked them, about John the Baptist, who other than Jesus would have been the primary, primary religious figure on the scene in their day. All the people revered John as a prophet, but the religious leaders did not. So now if they say, well, yes, John was sent by God, then Jesus will say, well, why didn't you listen to him? And why don't you listen to me? Because, you know, John had endorsed Jesus. But if they say, yeah, he was not sent by God, he was on his own, then they'll lose face in front of all the people who revered John, which is like their worst fear is to, to lose face in front of the people. So they say, we don't know. And Jesus says, well, then I'm not gonna tell you. And I always thought reading this that Jesus was just kind of being uh, dodgy and refusing to interact with these guys. But actually his trap is much worse than that. Because if they can't answer his question or give a judgment on John the Baptist, the most important religious figure of their time up to Jesus, then how could they be in a position to say whether Jesus' ministry was from God or not? By refusing to answer, they also expose themselves as incompetent judges on religious matters. So they're caught in their own snare. But why do they try this in the first place? Why do they come to him uh, to question him? Why do they want to trap him? Clearly they want to see him discredited and disproved, but why? Why do that? Why was Jesus' authority so dangerous to them? I mean, because on the surface, they, you know, they're, they're the defenders of orthodoxy and the defenders of religious purity. And Jesus, well, he's a lawbreaker and a blasphemer right? So he needs to be shut down. But they never really considered whether his claims, you know, to be the son of God and why he could do all these miracles might actually be true. They never got around, I think, to seriously considering that because underneath they had deeper issues with Jesus. Because of him, they were losing their self-esteem, their popularity as the religion go-to guys in Israel. So Jesus threatened their place as religious authorities. His authority threatened their authority. And if you understand the claims of Jesus, who he claims to be, 
he may always be to you in some way a threatening rival for the authority of your life. He is what one person called a transcendental interferer, always meddling in our private affairs, claiming authority over us. Who does he is to tell me who I should sleep with or how I should spend my paycheck or my free time? Why can't he mind his own business and leave me alone for just a second? You see, sometimes, perhaps not always, but sometimes our questioning and doubting of Jesus' authority is not always fueled by honest inquiry, but by a terrible dislike of his claim to have the right to tell us what to do. And this seems to at least be the case here for these men. So in their response to their rejection, in his response to their rejection, Jesus tells them a parable, kind of a thinly veiled parable about their rejection of his authority and what's going to happen because of it. So the parable Jesus tells them here, it's, it's not exactly original. Uh, it's a variation of another parable found, found earlier in the Bible given by the ancient prophet Isaiah. I'll read it to you. It's this little parable poem. It's called a love poem. So this Old Testament love poem. And see if you hear some similarities from the parable that Jesus told. It says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes or bad grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So there's an Old Testament love poem for you. But you have to remember that the people Jesus is speaking to, the chief priests, the scribes, they knew their Old Testament prophets in the Hebrew scriptures really, really, really well. So when Jesus starts up this parable about a vineyard and someone planting a vineyard with a watchtower and a wine vat and all these little details, they would hearken back to this poem about God's judgment, you know, on foolish, fruitless Israel back then. But Jesus puts this dangerous twist on the parable. There's some new characters in it now. It's not just the man in the bad vineyard. Now there's some farmers who are renting the place. And they're supposed to be, you know, caring for the vineyard, producing fruit for the owner. But there's also a son who's killed by the the tenants to get the vineyard for themselves. And it's not too hard to figure out when you hear the parable, you know, who is supposed to be who. It's kind of like uh, Pastor Harry Trotter or Pastor Daniel Presswell. It's not that hard, you know, to figure out who they're talking about. And they're not big fans of the parable because they figure out he's speaking it against them. And now instead of Israel being the, the vineyard that's under God's judgment, it's them. It's the leaders 
It's the tenant farmers that are under God's judgment. And there's a, there's a lot of strange things that happen in this parable that Jesus tells, but there's reasons, reasons for all of it. I mean, notice, first of all, the landowner's extreme patience. He, he's almost, it seems, foolishly patient with these guys. He sends servant after servant to them, and yet they beat them. You know, they kill them. And he still, still sends more people to them. He sends even his beloved son. What in the world? Ultimately, though, this is meant to display the patience, kindness, and long-suffering of God with wicked people who reject his authority. He's kind to them. He sends messages to them. And finally, he sends his son, the one who would represent, you know, and carry all the honor and prestige of the family, just like the father himself. And secondly, you notice that this son holds a unique place in the story. He's not like everyone else who was sent before. It says he had one other, like one last one, a beloved son, and the father sends him finally or at last. So Jesus places himself in this parable in an unprecedented pivotal role as he would in the history of humanity. Jesus understood himself to be the beloved son of God, the final, at last, revelation of God to a stubborn people. And I've talked with many people, and you probably know many people, or maybe even some of, some of you would say, yeah, you know what, I believe in God. I believe in a higher power or something like that. But the idea that Jesus of Nazareth is God and that we should worship him exclusively, I don't know, seems like a stretch. But in the teachings of Jesus, in his mind, a rejection of him is a rejection of God. And then third, the owner is not going to continue to put up with this forever. He's patient. He's optimistic even. Surely they will respect my son. But once they've rejected and killed the son, it says he will come at last to bring justice in force. And then lastly, when you hear this parable, you think these farmers are crazy. Like at what point was this a good idea and things just get violent and out of hand? Well, maybe they assumed that the owner was dead. And so if they kill the son, they get the place. Or maybe they assumed that since the owner had not really done anything so far, he must be pretty soft. He's a real pushover. He's not going to judge us. He won't lift a finger against us no matter what we do. So in their words, they say, let's kill the son and the inheritance will be ours. If we get rid of the owner, we'll have the place to ourselves. You know, the fruit, the vineyard, the tools, the watchtower, all this awesome stuff will be ours. Jesus is saying that things went wrong when the religious leaders began to see all the gifts, the people, Israel, that God had entrusted to them, and then they began to use them for their own selfish advancement. I mean, it's kind of like kids fighting over stuff that doesn't even belong to them at all. You know you did this as kids, or kids, you do this. I know my kids do this. You know, we have a, like a big sectional sofa in our couch. There's like seven or eight places where you could choose to sit. And our kids fight over the one, like the one seat, you know, on the couch, trying to muscle each other out of the way. So what I normally say is like, hey, that's not your seat. This is even your couch. This is my couch. I bought this couch, you know, and I share it with you. Uh, we can all be this way about all sorts of things in our lives, even though all of it, all of it, they're good gifts from God's hand. 
So really more accurately, I should tell my kids that they are sitting on God's couch. I know, I know. But (laughs) things go wrong when we begin to think that we really own my stuff, my family, my relationships, my friendships, my business, my church, my life. And we start to leverage all those things simply for our own advancement and fulfillment and benefit. And in the end, this way of living can lead you to saying something like what they, the tenant farmers say in the parable. And what many people have said today, let's get rid of God or redefine him so I can have my life to myself. And I'm not trying to pick on non-religious people here because to be totally fair, this parable is mostly aimed at people like me and maybe like some of you who are considered to be leaders in a religious community because there's a religious version of this way of thinking where we may not formally get rid of God, but we can dismiss him from our lives, paying lip service to his authority while silently resenting or just flat out ignoring it. And we cease to use the good things that God gave us, even our church, even our ministries, even the people around us to bear fruit for God. And we just use them for our own self-inflation or approval or power or whatever. So this parable is not just a warning for those foolish Pharisees back then. It's for us. Uh, one of the chapters in the Screwtape Letters deals with this so pointedly. Uh, Screwtape Letters, if you are not familiar with it, is a book by C.S. Lewis where a fictional older demon coaches a younger demon on how to like tempt and trip up people or whatever. He says this in chapter 21. It's really worth reading the whole chapter, but here's a small snippet of it. And remember, this is being spoken like by a demon. So just that helps you understand what it's saying. Um, he says, the sense of ownership in general is always to be encouraged. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which sound equally funny in heaven and in hell, and we must keep them doing so. And all the time, the joke is that the word mine in its fully possessive sense cannot be uttered by a human about anything. In the long run, either our father or the enemy will say mine of each thing that exists, and especially of each man. They will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong. Certainly not to them, whatever happens. Now Jesus concludes this parable uh, by asking these leaders about a particular scripture. It comes from Psalm 118. He asks, ironically, have you never read your Bibles or have you not read this passage? Do you not read your Bible? Which is of course, like of course they do every day. But what he's getting at is that even though they will reject him, his authority will still be established. He will still be established as the cornerstone. He will become the focal and foundational point of a new temple where people can meet with God and be put right with God. And by quoting this Old Testament scripture to them, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. By quoting this to them, he's giving them and us two reasons why we should submit our lives to the authority of Jesus. 
That was the question we sort of set out to answer this morning, so let's, let's try to answer it. And how does this passage help us? Well, two things. One, his authority is real. It's ultimate. And then secondly, his authority is good. It's different than maybe most authorities that you know or have, have been around or what you think of. So first, it's real or it's ultimate. Their rejection of, rejection of Jesus and really any rejection of Jesus in the final analysis and of rejecting his authority is only temporary because his establishment as the cornerstone, his foundational unalterable place in spiritual reality cannot be moved. Even his crucifixion and death only served to cement his role and accomplish this plan. It was the Lord's doing. You cannot thwart the Lord's work. Um, at the end of this account in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, he adds this, Jesus says a little bit more, he adds and says, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So what's, what's, that, what's that about? What's that supposed to mean? Well, it means that if you reject Jesus, it will ultimately shatter you now and forever because your life was meant to be built upon him. It's the only way to build a life is on a cornerstone. So in the end, the authority of Jesus will become clear one way or another. And this will either be your greatest joy or your worst nightmare. His authority is real and it is ultimate. But there's more to his authority than just that. Ultimate authority can be intimidating, uh, but not necessarily endearing. But Jesus' authority is different than other authorities you've known. Right? The trouble with authority is that you can't always trust them. Right? How do you know that they have your best interest in mind? Hardly ever is there any vulnerability to go along with someone else's authority. And so the idea of God claiming total authority over us, it can seem terribly one-sided, right? But Jesus establishes his authority over our lives in such a different manner than you might expect in a way that no other God or religious figure or political figure would do. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to thy throne. To quote a poem that I like, Jesus, as he says here, he would be rejected. The Son of God, with unlimited power and authority, would be exposed, tortured, and killed by and for the ones who rejected him. You see, Jesus' claim at ultimate authority is tinged with a blood-red hue of total vulnerability. And you see, this is what will make you able to gladly embrace his authority over each area of your life. I think one of the most amazing verses in the Bible is like this little footnote, like you could read right by it. It's in the book of Acts, Acts chapter six, verse seven. It says, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Whoa, what in the world? Many of the priests, probably some of these same guys in this story who resented Jesus' authority so much, they hated his authority claims, but now it says they became obedient 
to the faith. They submitted to his authority. Why? What changed? What gives? Well, it's when they understood that even though Jesus, as the Son of God, had total authority, he died for them. He rose for them, his enemies. And that even though they were the wicked farmers, the wicked selfish farmers in the story who had rejected the Son and deserved to be crushed by the owner's judgment, because of what Jesus did, they could instead have God's forgiveness and his love. This is what turns proud, self-absorbed priests into humble disciples. And this is what can change you too. When you know that Jesus' authority is different. It's selfless. It's vulnerable. It's sacrificial. It's kind. And so when you think about your life and you recognize all the amazing gifts that God has given you, your family, your job, your house, you can see that all these things can now be under his authority, given to bear fruit for him because his authority is good. So when he comes to inspect us, his vineyard for fruit, what will he find among us? In the language of Isaiah, when he comes to look for justice and righteousness among his people, what will he find? Will he find us using the gifts, the good things in the language of the parable? You know, it's like the watchtower, the vine, uh, the wine vat, the tools, all those things, whatever it is that God has given us. Will he find us using those for his purposes, investing ourselves in others who will bear fruit for God, or will he find us using it all for ourselves? See, this is what the authority of Jesus is all about. Changing people's hearts to make them new and selfless and using them as agents of change in the lives of others. In church lingo, we call this making disciples. It's what we're called to as we live under the authority of Jesus to use everything he's given us in the work of making disciples. These are the final words of Jesus to his disciples on earth. Matthew 28, Jesus came to them and said, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is fruit. This is the fruit of our lips and our lives that he is looking for. So, this morning, will you embrace the good authority of Jesus in your life? Or will you seize the gifts that God has given you and use them all on yourself? We're all tempted to do that. We struggle with Jesus' authority claims over us. We struggle to relinquish pieces of our lives to his authority instead of using them for ourselves. But his authority is ultimate and it's good and it calls us to bring each of those pieces of our world to him in obedience to him. Uh, there's a prayer that Larry has used, I think at least twice through this sermon series in Mark. I think he's ended his sermons with this and we're gonna close with it again today. Maybe this would be helpful for you to do like some of us have done and set this as a reminder on our phones to pray or write it down somewhere where you, you'll see it regularly. It's called the Covenant Prayer by by John Wesley. You can find it online pretty easily. And 
Maybe this is something you could pray um, in your heart along with me today. And uh, perhaps it's something we need to pray more often in your daily life. Let me pray this for us and then we'll stand and sing together. Lord, I am no longer my own but yours. So put me to do what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me to be put to work for you or set aside for you, praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O oh wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Amen.